We are going to be continuing our study in the Beatitudes. We've been taking a look one at a time, just one at a time. Each one of these blesseds, the keys to a happy life, not exactly what you find on the shelves of the self-help section at Barnes & Noble down by the mall, Golden Triangle Mall. No, it looks a little bit different than that, but the Lord Jesus says, here are the keys to the happy life. It's the happy life that God himself blesses us with by His grace. And so we turn now and give our attention to the reading of His Word, these words of Christ. I'm going to read all of the Beatitudes, then circle back and read the one that we will be focusing on at the end. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, He went up to the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our text today... Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. The best way to begin is by reminding ourselves of two essential facts about the Beatitudes. First of all, this isn't a list, it's not a checklist that you and I are to follow if we are to somehow, on our own merit, gain entrance into the kingdom of Christ. That's not why Christ has given it to us. It's not a ladder into heaven where the most diligent among us, the most vigilant among us might climb up into the presence of God on our own strength, effort, and merit. No, that's not what the Beatitudes do. What it's giving us is the character and the culture of the kingdom, those who have been saved by the very grace of God in Christ, those who have been regenerated by His Spirit and have been brought into the covenant of grace having received all of the blessings and the benefits that are theirs in Christ, this is what they look like. It's the culture of the kingdom on earth. And what we see then is that character, that is, that character that God is producing in us by His Spirit as His people, comes before conduct. And so the first reminder that we need is that the Beatitudes are not a map showing us the way to be saved. Rather, it's a mirror that reflects the character of those who are already saved. I think this becomes especially clear if you notice down on the page when we realize there's only one imperative in all of the Beatitudes, and we see it right at the end, and this is what Jesus says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. There's the imperative. It's the only imperative in all the Beatitudes. Rejoice be glad. 
for, your, for great is your reward in heaven. And so nowhere in the Beatitudes are we told to do anything in order to become something. The Beatitudes are not a series of exhortations. They are a series of exhibitions, a portrait gallery of what a genuine Christian looks like by God's grace. The second important thing that we need to remember when we're looking at the Beatitudes is that these are not disconnected ideas. They may be distinct from one another, but they are organically or logically connected. There's a sequence to them. And so they're not like a bag of marbles all thrown together, accidentally touching one another. No, Spurgeon called them a ladder of light, each rung leading farther upwards to the glory of God and the character of His kingdom. We saw there in verse 3 that the poor in spirit, those are those who have been humbled by the grace of God. We see ourselves for what we really are, that is, defiled and corrupted by sin. And such a poverty of spirit as we see in verse 3 naturally leads by God's grace beyond a mere acknowledgement of sin. And that conviction naturally turns then to contrition as we mourn for sin. It is a godly grief, not merely a worldly grief that those who get caught in sin have, who don't like the consequences of, of their sin, but it's those who know that they have offended an all-holy God and transgressed His law, and they mourn. It's the kind of mourning that leads to life, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. Naturally, this leads us to become meek, doesn't it? Because in the gospel, our egos have been fatally wounded. We make no claims for ourselves, but rather we submit ourselves, all of our strength, all of our minds, all of our soul, everything that we've got, we submit all of it to God, even when God disciplines us and even when others denounce us. But that's okay because the members of Christ's kingdom don't wallow in self-pity. Instead, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6. We long to be holy, and we long to live holy lives, and we long to see the holiness of God, the very glory of God, fill the earth as the waters fill the seas. That's what we long for. And so we avail ourselves then of all of God's means of grace, of the preaching of the Word and the gathering of His church and of prayer, of singing, and of all of the things that He's appointed to help us to become more like Christ, holy like He's holy, set apart for God's service in the world. But I want you to notice that the progression of the Beatitudes doesn't stop there. No, the promise that is given to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, see that there at the end of verse 6, is that they shall be satisfied. You realize that something that is filled, that's literally what that word satisfied means, they shall be filled, something naturally that is filled eventually overflows. And that's what we see in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Or if we were to put it another way, poverty of spirit and mourning over sin, meekness and longing for righteousness, those are all matters of the heart and matters of our relationship before God, inward matters, addressing those things that only God Himself can produce in us. But now we see, beginning here in verse 7, the grace of God producing things from us outwardly. Genuine Christianity begins in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, but it doesn't end there. We're not pietists that just, that just 
shrink away into our homes and hide from the world and hide from everybody. We are those who have been called to be His witnesses in the world, witnesses of His grace and exhibitors of His mercy. And so the person who has been filled with righteousness, in verse 6, wants to see it overflow to others in what Jesus here defines as mercy. They are merciful because they are overflowing with the mercy of God to them. The righteousness of God flows out of them, and what it looks like when it comes out, verse 7, is mercy. And so as we consider what the Scriptures teach concerning the mercy of God and of our own mercifulness, we need to ask ourselves, each one of us individually, we need to look at ourselves and we need to ask, am I a merciful person? If I were to ask my spouse, my children, if I were to ask those that I work with, my distant family members, whoever it may be, if I were to ask them if they thought I was a merciful person, what would they say? Well, I don't mean for this to discourage us, but rather to show us how God intends to work in us, that is, those of us who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in Christ, who have been brought into His kingdom and have received the blessings and the benefits of His covenant. All of those things are ours, and so now how does it transform us? It's meant to make us merciful. But what is mercy? It's one of those words, I think, as a Christian that we can't take for granted. We have all kinds of words that are familiar to us, but I imagine if we wrote down definitions on the back of note cards and turn them around, we might have all different kinds of definitions of what mercy is, and so it's good to stop for just a minute and define mercy. What is mercy? The word that Jesus uses, translated merciful here in verse 7, it's speaking not merely of a feeling. There's another word for that in Greek, splankton. It, 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 it talks about feeling it down in your bowels. You know, when you feel in the pit of your stomach, compassion for those who are mourning and hurting. Well, that's a related idea, but that's not the word that Jesus uses here. No, the word that Jesus uses here implies not only a feeling, but action. When it's used as an adjective, it describes those who are moved to take active steps to be merciful toward one another. And so mercy then, in the way that Jesus is describing it here, is an act that moves toward those who are hurting in one way or another in two general areas, in a practical area and a spiritual area. Mercy is practical and it is spiritual. What do I mean by that? Mercy is practical insofar as it gives help to the needy and it is spiritual insofar as it grants forgiveness to the guilty. Those are the two aspects that the word that Jesus uses, the two aspects of this word throughout the New Testament. It's either giving help to the needy or it is granting forgiveness to the guilty. And this is the kind of life that the Holy Spirit is producing in those who belong to Christ. This is the kind of culture that the Holy Spirit, by His word, is meant to be producing in local churches like ours, that the air that we breathed when we come in and we gather together, the air that we breathe should smell a little something like mercy. It's the culture of the kingdom. But then it raises a second question. 
if mercy is us acting on behalf of others, both practically and spiritually, giving help to the needy and granting forgiveness to the guilty, why even be merciful in the first place? What are our motives? What drives us, motivates us, moves us to be merciful? I'm going to give you two things. First and foremost, and you have to begin here, we are merciful because God has been merciful to us. Amen? Put your finger there in Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to go to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 9. Go all the way past the Psalms and keep turning left. Go past Job, past Esther, all the way to Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me give you a little context before we start. It's one of the most moving passages in the Old Testament. I encourage you to go home if you have a little bit of time tonight before you go to bed to read all the way through it. It's so edifying. But we are told of an occasion when Israel assembles now before God. And they end up reading Scripture for an entire quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they spend it in confession of sin and in worship. All right? Ain't nobody complaining about how long our services are. We're just going to go to that Nehemiah 9 service one day. A quarter of the day reading scripture, a quarter of the day confessing sin and worshiping God. Israel's spiritual leaders are recalling all of God's dealings with His people. They go all the way back to creation and they trace His grace and mercy in preserving His promised seed through the nation at every stage of Israel's history. And as they do, I want you to hear just kind of the beat of what they're saying, the rhythm, the theological rhythm to what they're saying. Chapter 9, verse 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, says, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You've seen it. You've beheld in the lives of saints that have gone before you, including Job. And what do we know Job the most for? Other than all of the things that he suffered. And yet even in his suffering, the Lord is compassionate and merciful that he acts on behalf of his servant for his good. How has God been merciful to us? God has been merciful to us in at least two ways. He's been merciful to us on the one hand practically, and he's also been merciful to us spiritually. You're going to see these two categories coming up often in my sermon of the practical and the spiritual, of the temporal and the eternal. On the one hand, He has been merciful to us insofar as He has shown us a common mercy. Paul preached in Acts 17 that the God who made the world and everything in it gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then he quotes a pagan poet, for in him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, verse 28. Thomas Watson said, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. What does he mean by that? I tell you this often. I pray this often. I think I've shared with you that I bring this up often when I'm teaching British literature. We talk about it in our home. We talk about it in our ministry. But the wages of sin is what? And yet here we are. Each one of us, perhaps even 
you who have wandered in here, you would perhaps not even count yourself a Christian, you're just investigating Christian things. Have you ever thought for a minute that the very breath that you drew today to wake up from the warm shower that you took and the clothes on your body to the meal that you enjoyed, to being able to arrive safely here to the singing of the saints, to hear harmonies, that all of those things are God's kind mercies to you? Because He's patient. That you, like all of us, will be brought to repentance and faith in His Son. That He would give you yet another day and another breath, that with that breath you would not curse at God, you would not scoff at God, but rather you would throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. And He's been merciful to every single one of us in this way. You ever wonder, on what basis then does the Apostle Paul tell us to give thanks always? <laughs> well, if everything that, if you and I deserve death for sin, then everything in our life that is better than death for sin, all the good things that God gives us, and all of the bad things that God will turn to good in our lives, are His mercy to us. And His mercies are countless, infinite in number. We can't hardly even see them. If we tried, it would eat up all of our days and all of our weeks and all of our months. Why do we give thanks always? Because we deserve death for sin, and yet here we are. God has given us yet a common mercy. That the sun has risen again, that the rain falls and produces food. The Lord willing, we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christians are merciful because God has been merciful to us in Christ. We deserve death for sin. We were children of wrath. And instead, He has made us His own sons and daughters in Christ. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters as he intercedes for us as our great high priest and of the firstborn of his kingdom. So the first reason that we're merciful is because God has been merciful to us in a common way by giving us breath and life and in a very specific and redemptive way by saving us in Christ by faith alone. But there's a second reason that should motivate us to be merciful and it flows out of the mercy that God has shown us in Christ. And it's this, it's because it assures us that we're Christians. It assures us that we're Christians. Listen to what the Apostle John says, 1 John 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Just one chapter later, he says, For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Merely talking about mercy does not meet needs. If our words are, are not joined with our actions, then our words are worthless. James says this, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. No, what, what James is saying is not that you and I are saved by works. We are saved by faith, 
justified in Christ by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. It is accompanied by works. It's living and active and produces in us something of the aroma of Christ to those who are around us. And so he's not preaching a salvation by works. He's rebuking Christians. He should do so with cheerfulness. So we should give mercy gladly. But secondly, we should also give mercy humbly. If you're still in Matthew chapter 5, some of you might be in Nehemiah, go back to Matthew chapter 5, and you can go to Matthew, just over to the chapter 6. And I just want you to read along with me. Put your eyes on it. What is our mercy to look like? Do we put it on billboards? Do we go, hey, look at how merciful we are? What should it look like? Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Our mercy should never end up on TikTok. You can make $700 million in net worth by pimping your mercy on YouTube. You might even give yourself a title, something like, I don't know, Mr. Beast. Consider what Jesus says. You will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. We not only give gladly, but our acts of mercy should be humble. We should be content that the only one who ever sees our mercy is the one to whom we are being merciful and the God who has been merciful to us, full stop. So we want to be humble. But how exactly are we to be merciful? We're to be, do so gladly, we're to do so humbly, but practically speaking, what does it look like? How are we to be merciful in the way that Jesus is commending in the Beatitudes? Two general areas, once again, we're to be merciful in practical ways, and we're to be merciful in spiritual ways. On the one hand, we as believers are to be merciful insofar as we give help to those who are in need. Consider Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 4, previous chapter, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. Preaching and healing were the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry. And he shows mercy to the whole person, not just body but soul, spiritually and physically. And yet in every instance of, the, of describing Jesus' ministry in the Gospels in these ways, preaching is always mentioned first. And that's because the primary sphere of Christian mercy is spiritual and not physical. This is what distinguishes Christian mercy from worldly philanthropy. The world, without the help of the Holy Spirit, can meet physical needs and praise God for His common grace when they do. But what is it that ultimately distinguishes Christian mercy from worldly mercy, from worldly philanthropy? Is it not this? That the goodness of our mercy is accompanied by the greater goodness of the good news of the gospel? Mercy without the gospel will have 
full bellies and clothed backs in hell. Mercy with the gospel promises something greater than what might fill our bellies or cover our backs on any given day. It gives us Christ. And that is ultimately what we have to offer. Listen to John Blanchard. He says this, Mercy that ignores spiritual need is not the full-orbed mercy shown by Jesus. Christian mercy includes gospel mercy. And this can be shown only by those who have received God's mercy and long that others should receive it too. Let's understand, just in the same way that Jesus preached the gospel and extended mercy, these two things go together hand in hand. Though the preaching of the gospel might take priority, it does not mean that we dismiss one for the other or negate one for the other. In fact, there are five ways that mercy serves our evangelism. Number one, it demonstrates the character of Christ, that when we are merciful to those who are hurting, we look a whole lot like Christ in the world. Secondly, it shows the power of the gospel to change us. Whereas once we were merciless, now we are merciful. He has changed our character in such a way that we would be so generous with our money and our time and our effort and even risking our own selves for the good of others that the only thing that can explain it is that a man was raised from the dead and gave us his Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it models a pattern of discipleship. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Isn't that always the aim, that we would follow Christ, that we would tread the paths that he treads? Paul says, I'm eager to care for the poor. They're always going to be with us. Fourthly, it acknowledges the human condition, and here's what I mean by that, is that it rejects that errant notion that I think sometimes evangelical Christians can, can slip into, and that is to treat everybody as if they're only and merely souls to be saved. No, rather, we treat people as whole people, as embodied, enfleshed souls. And we acknowledge in that human condition that this world has been cursed by God because of sin, and that inflicts all manner of suffering. And because of sin, there are those who are in the, in the throes of addiction and who have experienced broken homes and families and, and who experience broken bodies and, and, and whose brains are breaking down. And, and perhaps some of those things have led to, to rampant homelessness, among other things. We could keep on going. But when our mercy accompanies our evangelism, it acknowledges that in real time, the human condition on this side of the resurrection. And fifthly, it generates opportunities to share the gospel, doesn't it? Why would we do what we do? Would it not be ultimately for the sake of Christ? That we would aim to share the gospel. Does that mean that we're using mercy as kind of a, as a bait and switch for the gospel? No, it's to say these two things are best friends, peanut butter and jelly. They go hand in hand. How can those of us who have received the grace of the gospel not be merciful and show mercy? And in showing mercy, how can we not commend to, to sufferers the very same gospel that we've come to believe in by God's grace? They go hand in hand. I wonder if we were to ask the question, how is Covenant Baptist Church doing in this kind of mercy? I think any of one of us might see there are ways that individual believers in our church are doing great things, and, and some of you are committed to fostering and adopting, and some of you are committed to working with at-risk women, whether through Women and Women Re Pregnancy Resource Center or other things. Some of you have a heart for the homeless community, and you've taken active steps toward that, but, but I wonder if we were to examine our own hearts or even the ways that we leverage the collective giving of our church for the relief of the poor beginning in our church and then to those outside, 
How are we doing? I wonder if in our own tradition, in our own circle, if there might be somewhat of a tendency to shy away from that kind of mercy because we understand that that is not the mission of the church. And indeed it's not. The chief mission of the church is the evangelization of the nations. And yet, should not our evangelization, our evangelizing, our preaching, be accompanied with acts of mercy? Beginning with the household of God, Paul says in Galatians 6. And so I wonder, even as some of you have your your toes dipped into various strategic organizations and places in our city to be merciful, I wonder if that might be a place to invite other Christians in our body to participate with you. Or if you have ideas on the ways that we might be able to leverage our own resources for the relief of the poor in our city, what that might look like. If you have ideas, well, let's talk about them. That doesn't mean that we can do every idea. We can't do most ideas. We certainly don't want to be a a church that becomes all about this thing. But what we do know is that we can't not be merciful if this is indeed the culture of the church. And so these are things that we need to give consideration to, beginning with our elders and out to the members. But it also looks like, secondly, not just helping those who are in need, it looks like granting forgiveness to the guilty. And if we're really honest, this is much harder than helping those who are needy. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We read earlier in our service, Peter asked, how many times must I forgive? Seven times? Peter thought he was doing pretty well. The rabbis of the day said you only had to forgive three times. Forgive them once, they do it again, forgive them again, they do it again, forgive them again, you don't forgive them anymore if they keep doing it. You're good. You fulfilled rabbinic tradition. Peter goes, what about seven times? I've doubled the rabbis plus one. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, you need to forgive 77 times or seven times 70. He's quoting from Genesis 4, where Lamech throws up his arms in triumphs and says, the vengeance of Cain is sevenfold, but the vengeance of Lamech is 77-fold. It knows no bounds, no limits. Jesus, picking up on that language, says, your forgiveness is to know no limits. By the way, let me tell you a parable. (laughs) You always know you're in trouble when he goes, I got a story for you. Beloved, forgiveness is not optional. For Christians. Those who have been forgiven, forgive. Charles Spurgeon used to say, forgive and forget, and when you bury a mad dog, don't leave his tail above the ground. As much as I enjoy quoting Spurgeon, I do think Spurgeon's words here are slightly unrealistic. Though we aim to forget offenses against us, sometimes it is impossible to forget on this side of the resurrection. And we will bear those scars that, have, that are from the wounds of others until Christ gives us an incorruptible existence. And they're reminders to us of what sin does. Sometimes it's impossible to forget, but even when it's impossible for us to forget by God's grace, because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in you, it is never impossible to forgive. 
Let me give one more qualification. When we're talking about forgiveness, I want to make sure that you understand that I do not necessarily mean reconciliation. Reconciliation is a good goal to have, but we cannot forgive with the goal of reconciliation such that until we are reconciled with the person we forgive, we have not truly forgiven. To forgive someone is to release them of the debt that you would hold over them for their offenses against you. I will not hold it over your head anymore. Forgiveness requires only one party unidirectionally toward the other party. Reconciliation requires both. There may be instances in your life where you are going to have to forgive and you will have to forgive someone that you may never be reconciled with on this side of heaven. Their wounds are too great and they're too unwilling. Or it may just be generally unwise. And that's okay. Not that God can't do that. He often does. But just as a little freebie within the sermon, I want to make sure that we don't conflate forgiveness with reconciliation in this way. There are ways in which we can forgive and still yet remain unreconciled. That we free ourselves and cut out that root of bitterness, not hanging things over other people's heads. That we're not grinding away at them in our minds and our hearts constantly. But rather we are seeking to forgive them. You say, well, you don't know what what so-and-so's done to me or what so-and-so is currently doing to me. We'll say that to Gordon Wilson. Some of you have heard about the Poppy Day Massacre in Northern Ireland, 1987. This just came across my desk in the last couple of weeks. It was a video of an interview of a man named Gordon Wilson. In 1987, on the Poppy Day Massacre, 11 people were blasted to death by a terrorist bomb, including the daughter of a man named Gordon, Gordon Wilson. And in an interview with Mr. Wilson, who was a Christian, he told a BBC reporter, quote, I prayed for the bombers last night. I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. It is part of God's greater plan, and God is good. Oh. Only a man who has been raised from the dead and given us his Holy Spirit can do that. There's some of you in here who go, man, you don't even know how I'm getting bombed right now. You don't know the kind of pain I got. You don't know the kind of wounds. And I would say, I know. I don't know. But God knows. He hears you. He knows you. He draws near to you through His Spirit. And He will strengthen you to be merciful to those who would cause you harm or those who have offended you just as he has shown you mercy. Corey Ten Boom, many of you know who she is. Famous Corey Ten Boom was a Nazi death camp. Said, quote, you never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How then does the merciful receive mercy? Two general ways. We'll conclude with this. Two general ways. One physical and one eternal. One temporal and the other eternal. Spiritual. Let's consider each in turn. Because this is the promise, putting our eyes on Matthew 5, verse 7 again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now what... 
we've already established what Jesus is saying is not if you're merciful enough, you'll be forgiven and, and be saved in the last day. That if you're merciful enough, you can earn your way into the kingdom. If you're merciful enough, you can justify your, yourself before God. That is not at all. We've already established that's not what he's teaching. And so if that's not what he's teaching, what is he teaching? Well, first of all, he's teaching that you and I, when we're merciful in physical ways, that we can be generous with open-handed mercy even if it costs us much, because God sees it, and He will be generous in His care of us. We can be merciful because we're confident God will care for us. Consider Proverbs eleven twenty four: One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Proverbs twenty eight twenty seven: He who gives to the poor will lack nothing. What? Well, how is that? How does that economy work? Jesus explains, Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. We can give help to the needy. We can grant forgiveness to the guilty because God has been merciful to us and because he promises to take care of us. You will receive mercy. You may not get everything that you want in this life, the house that you like, the car that you like, the clothes that you like. You may have to sacrifice reflooring your gorgeous new house. You may have to sacrifice all kinds of things in this life that you want in order to be merciful for the good of others. But God says, I may not give you new floors. I may not give you a new car. I may not give you the best clothes. I may not give you any of those things. But you will receive mercy just as you give it. I will take care of you. I will take care of you. You will lack nothing. Do you trust me? That you'll receive mercy in this way? You can give freely of yourself because I've promised to care for you. I may not have told you exactly how I'm going to do it and when I'm going to do it, but I've promised I'm going to do it. But the second thing would be spiritual, wouldn't it? Jude 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Here we're talking about those suffering for Christ's sake. Those who are being afflicted by false gospels in and around the church, keep yourself in God's love. You can't keep yourself in something that you've not yet received. These are those who are in God's love, who stand in the truth of the gospel and are waiting for the appearing of Christ. They're waiting for mercy, for suffering to end. 2 Timothy 1.18, Paul writing to Timothy, of the, tells him of the way that he's appreciated the fellowship and the help of his friend, on Asiphorus, he says this, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. Oh, Onesiphorus has given much of himself to take care of me. He has lost much that I might gain much. And I pray that the Lord repays him with mercy in the day. Listen to what G Thomas Manton puts it so helpfully. It is no small thing that we may expect from infinite mercy and infinite mercy. In other words, is there anything you would give up for the good of others in this life that God does not have the resources times infinity to repay? Is that not what Jesus promises us? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands who have given up much for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and they inherit eternal life. Only a man who's been raised from the dead and gives his Holy Spirit as a gift of the gospel 
can produce that. Blessed are the merciful. The happy life is the merciful life of the acting from our own resources for the good of others on the basis of the promise that God will take care of us both in this life and ultimately in the life to come when Christ comes again for us. We will never look back in that day and regret anything that we have given up for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. Do you believe that he can repay it all? According to Matthew 5, 7, he's promised to do it. Let's pray.